Good morning, church. Uh, it's great to see all of you here today on our first Sunday of the new year. And so what we're going to do today is something that we do every Sunday of the first of the year, uh, really the first month of the year, and that is to remind ourselves who we are and what we are about as a spiritual community. So what we do every January of the new year is we take a fresh look at our vision statement, which says this, we're called together for the renewal of all things through Jesus Christ. God is in the business of renewal. This is what God does. The last thing recorded that Jesus says in the Bible is in Revelation 21, where Jesus says, behold, do you remember? Behold, I am making all things new. That's what Jesus is up to. Jesus has risen from the dead. He's ascended and seated at the right hand of the Father. He is now actively at work in the world through the power of the Holy Spirit. And what is he doing? He is renewing. This is what he's up to. He's renewing individual men and women and boys and girls. Uh, he's renewing relationships and communities. He's renewing cities and institutions. He's even renewing the nations of the earth. This is what God is now up to in the world, the work of renewal. And if God is in the work of renewal, then God's people are also in the work of renewal. And so this is our work as a church. We are called together for the renewal of all things through Jesus Christ. So this month, what we're going to do is we're going to look at one particular aspect of the renewal that Jesus is bringing in the world, and that is the renewal of people. The question that we're asking this month is, how do people change? How do people change? How does God do the work of change, transformation, renewal in the lives of ordinary people like you and me? And so to do that, what we're going to do is we're going to take one chapter in the Bible, the book of Colossians chapter 3, which is really an astounding work of literature and divine uh, wisdom to us about what does it mean to partner with God in the process of change. So we're going to spend the next four weeks deep in that book. So I'd love for you to read that book this month, study the book of Colossians, read this chapter several times. We're going to do that together. We're also, what we're going to do is something I'm excited about is that every week, you know, the podcast of the sermon is released usually on Monday or Tuesday. And in addition to the podcast of the sermon, we're going to release an additional podcast each week accompanying the sermon that is a story of change. It's a person in our congregation telling their own story of personal change that they've experienced through an encounter with the grace of Jesus. Uh, so this week, uh, our story of change is uh, Mary Damon. And you can hear Mary's full story uh, this week in the podcast feed. But we just wanted to give you a little snippet of her story. Um, and so just listen as we hear just a small portion of Mary's story of change. I had no really connection with God for a long time until I got married and I had children. Um, I mean, I... I thought I was a Christian. I thought I held certain um, sort of theological beliefs, but I didn't have any relationship with a loving God. Um, and of course, when I got married and Doug and I started having children, we figured we needed to sort of bring God back into the fold of our family. So um, we looked for a really nice church and found one. Um, and sort of played at church. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> played the church game we for a bit. We played the church game for a bit. 
Um, and for a number of years, I was able to um, to play the sort of suburban, um, white, 2.3 kids, half a dog kind of um, mm-hmm. kind of formula. And it, it worked okay for a while until it stopped working. Mm. And really for me, um, it stopped working when I realized part of, part of that equation was playing a lot with cocktail parties, with... Um, with socializing involving alcohol without restraint. Mm. And for a person like me, that's dangerous mm. because... With your family history. With my family history, with addiction. So um, I, I came to be really um, discouraged and really aware that I was living a lie that the suburban life that I was trying to make look so picture-perfect, checking off all the boxes, um, was not true. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the work of change that you want to bring in each of our lives. Thank you that your promise is real change, not just surface behavioral management, but real internal transformation. And we long to know that in each of our lives. And so we pray you would now pour out your spirit on the reading and preaching of your word, that we would not just hear it, but that we would be changed by it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you turn in your Bibles to Colossians 3 or your bulletins there, the reading is on page 10. Hear God's word. This is from Paul's letter to the Colossians. He writes this. Since... Then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things, for you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory." Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. I believe I've talked to you before about one of my most favorite pieces of art, a work by Michelangelo, and I really, not just the art, but the story behind the work of Michelangelo's Pieta, which is the Virgin Mary holding her crucified son. Michelangelo cast this in the year 1500. It's actually the only sculpture that we have of his that bears his signature. And it was installed in St. Peter's Basilica in Rome in the year 1500. And there it stood, perfect and untouched for nearly 500 years. And then in 1972, during a tour group that was making its way through St. Peter's Basilica, a vandal broke through the security line, wielding a hammer, and began to strike madly, shattering Michelangelo's Pieta into pieces. And it, it, was, it was a horrific, uh, it was just a horrific crime against the arts that went off like a bomb in the world of art at the time. And what was amazing, though, was what happened as a result. For the next year, this whole team of extremely gifted artists and craftsmen and women gathered up every single sliver, every 
shard of marble that had been scattered across the floor. They swept it up and they began to painstakingly glue and piece this sculpture back together again until it was restored to wholeness, what it is and you can still see today. What I'd like you to do is picture this as an image of what God wants to do in your life. I don't think there's many of you here today that I have to persuade or convince that there are some shattered places in your life. Would you agree with me on that? That there are some places in your life that are just broken, that are places in your life that you wish were different, the ways that perhaps you have been hurt or wounded by others or even hurt and wounded yourself. There's things about every single one of us that we wish were different, that we wish would change. And if you don't think that there is anything in your life that needs to be changed, just ask the person that you came with today. They'll tell you uh, about what might need to be changed in your life. The truth is, and here's the truth, friends, we've, got, we've all got these shattered, broken places in our lives, but the truth is, is that God did not make us broken. He did not create us to be shattered. He did not make us to be marred. He made us whole. He made us in his image to bear his beauty and his glory. And yet what evil has done, it it has rushed in with a hammer of destruction and struck us, shattered us until we are now just kind of shattered shadows of the whole person that God intended you and I to be. But here's the good news. Here's the good news. God is a master craftsman. He is a master artist. And what God wants to do in your life and mine is he wants to begin to remake us, remake every man and every woman and every child in his image to restore us again to that place of wholeness. That's his agenda for you. You know, January is full of a lot of, everyone is sort of re-upping on their personal agendas, right? Some of us have resolutions. Some of us have things that we want to do different. We want to be more organized. We want to be more healthy. We want to go to the gym more. We want to have better habits. I know all of that. Those are good things. But yet, I want you to hear today that God's ambition for you is so much greater. His, his agenda for you is so much greater than your agenda for yourself. His agenda for you is to make you whole to make you like himself. And that doesn't mean to make you religious or make you holy. It means to make you the best version of yourself, to make you like him, the person that you were meant to be. That's what God wants to do in you. Now, some of you are like, okay, I'm ready. Do it. Do it, God. But here's where the analogy breaks down a little bit, because sort of unlike the work of art that is sort of a passive object and cannot participate in its own restoration, We can, you and I can. God does not give spiritual lobotomies. He does not say, okay, zap, you are different. You are changed. And actually, many of us probably know people who have converted, who become Christians, but who have never partnered with God in the work of change, and they are the same jerks that they were before. Know what I'm talking about? And so what God wants to do is he wants to plant a new identity and a new power in us so that we now can participate with him, partner with him in this work of transformation and renewal that he wants to bring about in our lives. That's what the book of Colossians is all about. How God has transformed our identity in Christ and now gives us a new power so that we can partner with him in this work of personal change. Don't you want that? That's what this book is about. That's what we're going to look at together this month. 
All right? So this is just an introductory sermon. We're going to spend a whole month talking about this process of personal change. But today what I need to do is I need to lay down a fundamental principle. This is a fundamental truth, a principle for Paul, that if you don't get this, you won't get anything else that he has to say about personal change. This is actually a deep truth that he lays out, not only in this book, but in all of his letters. And the principle, the truth, the principle that we got to have to understand is union with Christ union with Christ. For Paul, personal change hangs on union with Christ. Paul teaches that when a person trusts in Jesus, it is not just new information in our heads, something actually happens to that person whereby God connects them to Jesus and gives them a new identity and new power so they can now live out and become a new person because of their union with Jesus. That's what we want to talk about. There's two sides to our union with Christ. There is the side that says, Christ now, you are now in Christ. And then there's the other side that says, Christ is now in you. You are in Christ, side A. Christ is in you, side B. Can we say that together, class? You are in Christ. Christ is in you. We're going to look at both those sides. Okay, the first thing that we see that union with Christ means is that you are in Christ. If we're going to talk about change, we have to talk about identity. Because you got to know who you are if you're going to know who you're going to become. And how do you know who you are? Who are you? And who do you look to to tell you who you are? Did you hear about uh, the mayor in the small town who thought very highly of himself? It's quite pompous. And he decided his approval ratings were dipping a little bit, so he decided to do sort of a public act of service to boost his ratings. And so he decided he would make a visit to the local nursing home, and he called up the local news station to accompany him to make sure that they could get it on camera. And so he was walking around, and, he, and everyone in the nursing home was so elated that the mayor chose to visit their nursing home. And he was walking around greeting all these people. And then he greeted this one man who was clearly not participating in the festivities, and he went up to him and he said, well, hello, sir, good to see you. And the man looked up and just grunted. Hmm. And the mayor was offended. This man clearly doesn't know who it is that is greeting him here. And so he said again to the man, hello, sir, do you know who I am? And the man looked up and said, no, I do not. But if you go down and ask the nurse at the nursing station, she'll tell you who you are. <laughs> so here, here's the question from that terrible joke. Who do you look to to tell you who you are? Who do you look to to tell you who you are? And the great question that the modern world presents to us, the, the, the answer that our age presents to us is that you look to yourself. You look to yourself to figure out who you are. You figure out who you are. You determine who you are. You create who you are. And you even recreate who you are. And so the concept of identity in the modern and postmodern world is essentially about a system of layers. Sociologists often talk about this. This is a really modern phenomenon when it comes to personal identity is that picture your life, your identity, almost like an onion with a series of layers, you understand? And some layers are closer to the core of who you are than others, and some layers are further out. So, you know, I am personally a husband, I'm a father, I am a pastor, I'm a communicator. You know, as you get further out, you know, I'm a Cubs fan, I'm a bird watcher, I'm a Mac user, you know, all these things. It gets further out, they become quite less important, but all of these things constitute who I am. But no, this is a very fragile notion of identity. Because if you know, if you hear all those things I said, all of them have to do with what I do, what I have, and what other people think of me. 
And the reason that's fragile is because any one of those things could be taken away. Any of those things can be lost. Any one of those things can be ripped from my life. And when those do, if those things that are so central and make up and constitute who you are are taken from you, it undercuts your very self. It's called identity fragmentation. You actually, your whole self begins to actually disintegrate, and you probably know people who lose a job or lose a spouse or have a divorce or lose a child or lose a dream, and their whole identity begins to disintegrate. So you can't just look to yourself to find out who you are, nor can you look to other people to tell you who you are. The Bible has an utterly contrary view about personal identity, that identity does not come from within, it comes from without. Identity does not come internally, but rather is given externally. Or to put it this way, the Bible teaches that identity is not something you achieve, it's something you receive. It's not something you accomplish, it's something you are given. It's not something you earn, it's something that is given to you by grace and which is now fixed and firm. And that's what Paul means when he writes in Colossians 3, verse 3. Look with me at the text. Note this. He says, for you died and your life is now, what does he say, hidden, where? With Christ in God. And then he says this, when Christ, who is what? Your life appears. Then you will appear with him in glory. He's saying your new identity is now bound up in another person who is external to you. You are in Christ. It's, it's, it's interesting to note that, I don't know if you knew this, that Paul never once uses the word Christian in any of his letters to describe the people who trust in Jesus. Never once. The phrase that he overwhelmingly uses to describe the people who trust and follow Jesus is this. People who are what? In Christ. You are in Christ. What does that mean? It means that you are in union with Jesus. United to him, bound to him, so that what is yours is his, and what's his is now yours. Think about a marital union. When two people get married, they come to exchange and mutually share both their assets and their liabilities. So when I married Sarah, she didn't just get me, she got my awesome collection of baseball cards and garbage pail kids cards from the 80s. You 80s kids remember that. So when, when you get married to someone who has a whole lot of college debt, guess what? It's not just their debt now, it's your debt. If you marry someone that has a huge family inheritance, guess what? It's not just their family inheritance, it's your family inheritance. When you get married, what's hers is yours, what's mine is hers. It's a exchange. And this is what Paul says has happened by faith with you and Jesus Christ. Now, it's a bum deal for Jesus, you understand? Because in this relationship, you have all the liabilities, he has all the assets. And so, yeah, and he, he doesn't care because he loves you. And so what happens is, first of all, negatively, Jesus receives voluntarily all of the liabilities of your life. Your sin, given to him. Your judgment, given to him. Your condemnation, damnation, given to him. Even so far, completely, all comprehensively so that Paul can say in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is now no condemnation for those who are what? In Christ. Everything that was yours, given to him. Now, positively that means is that everything that is his, Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, his triumph over the grave, his powers over the evil one, his conquering authority over evil, all of that now becomes yours. 
And so Paul can say this in Colossians 1, you were dead in your sins, but God has made you alive, what? In Christ. So as Jesus was raised, so you are raised in him. As Jesus has conquered death, so you conquered death in him. As Jesus has now power and authority over sin, temptation, evil, so now you have power over sin, temptation, and evil in him. What's his is yours. What's yours is his. This is a glorious deal, friends. This is a glorious marital exchange for you. You are in union with him. Your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And so your identity, guess what now? If you know Jesus, your identity is not something you achieve anymore. It's something you receive. It's not something you earn or accomplish anymore. It's something you are given. It's not that you are no longer those other things. I'm still a husband and a father and a pastor and a Cubs fan. Thanks be to God. I'm still all those things. But my identity no longer rests on those things. I have a core. I have a core that is unaffected by circumstances and unaffected by environment and unaffected by other people's judgments and criticisms of me and my performance. I have an identity that is enduring and unfixed. Why? Because it is external to me. It is beyond me. It is fixed in Christ. So where do you look? Who are you? Where do you look to know who you are? Do you look inside? Do you look to yourself? Do you desperately look and measure your performance? your accomplishments, how well your kids have turned out, how well your business did last year? Do you look to other people and what they say about you, the comments and the likes on your social media feeds? Who do you look to? The gift of Jesus is that you no longer have to look to anyone. You can look to someone who is outside of you. And you always know in him who you are. You are in Christ. And the secret of Christian identity that we're gonna be unpacking in the next couple weeks is to change means to become more and more and more of the person that you already are in Jesus Christ. Okay, so that's the first facet of union with Christ. You are in Christ. Now, the second facet, side B, is different but just as powerful. And that is the truth that not only are you in Christ, but what? Christ is in you. And so Paul can write this in Colossians 1. God has chosen to make known the glorious riches of this mystery, which is what? Christ in you, the hope of glory. Or he writes in Romans 8, but if Christ is what? In you, come on class, y'all know where I'm going here, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the spirit gives life because of righteousness. These verses, y'all, this is, this, this is almost too, I don't think it's an understatement to say this might be the most amazing thing you've ever heard. Okay, I'm not trying to play it up here. I, mean, I know I'm a rhetorician. I know that I can exaggerate. But I really do think that this is one of the most incredible things that you ever heard. God is a triune communion of persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And when a person trusts in Jesus Christ, the Father takes the Son, the second person of the Trinity, and deposits him through the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, in the life of the believer. He takes the living person of Jesus by the power of the Spirit and puts him in the core of the believer's life. The same Jesus who was born of the Virgin Mary, who walked among us, who healed, who cast out demons, who calmed seas, who rose up from the grave. The same, that same Jesus who now ascends at the right hand of the Father is now deposited in the believer so that your fundamental nature is now Change And you can now, through the power of the Holy Spirit, the person of Jesus in you, can now live a different kind of life 
than you could not have conceivably ever lived prior to the work of Jesus in you. Some of you are looking a little glazed over here. Let me just try to explain what I mean using this illustration from my friend Rankin. It's like Batman versus Spider-Man, okay? Listen to me, y'all. Superheroes. Y'all know the superheroes? Listen, think about Batman for a second. Batman is really cool, but he's just a dude. He's just Bruce Wayne. And he can do a lot of stuff, and he can be a superhero, but y'all, let's just face it. He's just rich, right? He's just rich. He's just bought a really sweet car in a juiced up suit, and that's how he can do all the stuff that he does. There is nothing about Bruce Wayne. He takes this suit off, you get rid of his car. There's nothing about Bruce Wayne that is fundamentally changed that is make him capable of doing what he does, right? Contrast that with Peter Parker, you know? Sweet old dear Peter Parker in the lab. He gets bitten by what? A radioactive spider. What happens to Peter Parker? His fundamental nature changes. He is no longer the person that he was. He has been an alien force has come into him from the outside and has made him into a new person so that he can now do things, suit or not, that he was not capable of ever doing before. So what am I saying? I'm saying Christ in you. It means if you are a Christian, you are Spider-Man, not Batman. You, you are not, it's not like, you're not like Bruce Wayne, where you just suddenly have a, a lot of new, cool, religious tools, like church and Bible and disciplines to try to live a better life. No, 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 that's not what it means to be a Christian. To be a Christian means that God actually, it's like Spider-Man, God, an alien presence comes inside of you. The power of God in the person of Jesus through the Holy Spirit comes to actually live inside of you to fundamentally change your nature so that you can now do things previously that you were not capable of doing before. What is this power for? Is it to scale buildings, rescue children? I mean, I like to do those things. But that's not what the power is for. The power is now to do this, to become like Jesus, to become fully human, to become whole, that he has now given you this power to live a different kind of life. You are no longer the sinner that you were. You are the saint that he has now made you to be. You no longer have, I can be thwarted by sin. You now have the power over sin and temptation. You no longer have to be compelled and driven by the harm and the wounds that others have inflicted upon you. You can now live a new life in the freedom in Christ because why? You are not just in Christ, but Christ is in you. You are fundamentally changed. And what it means to grow and change and become a new person is to live increasingly by drawing from the power, living in union with Jesus by the power that he has now deposited in you through the Holy Spirit. Paul says in Galatians 2, I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So that's what it means. That's what union with Christ means. And everything else about personal change flows from this. You are in Christ, Christ is in you. You are in Christ, Christ is in you. The first is about the work of Christ for you. The second is about the work of Christ in you. The first is about identity. The second is about power. You are one with Christ. You are in Christ, Christ is in you. So, so let me close like this. Um, I know that every single one of us wants to change something about ourselves. I want you to just actually consider just think about one thing in your life that you would love for God to change in you. Just think about that right now. I got a lot of them, friends. I, I wish that I weren't so impatient. I wish that I wasn't so prone to discouragement and depression. 
I wish I wasn't so captive to anxiety and fear. I wish I didn't care so dang much about what other people think about me. You know, I, 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 I wish that I wasn't captive to my emotional fluctuations. There's so, I, you want me to go on? There's, <laughs> there's so many things that I wish would change about me. And the thing is, is that how am I gonna change? How are you gonna change? We are deeply tempted, especially this time of year, to quickly go to techniques, right? If you could just get that new planner, it's only $24.99. <laughs> if you can just have this new app on your phone that, they, that the Apple store keeps on pinging you about, you know, if you could just have this list of this new set of habits. And, that, and I, I'm not knocking habits. In fact, over the next couple of weeks in our, in our Feb term, we're gonna be talking about how God actually wants to use the power of habit and spiritual discipline to bring about the change that he wants to bring in your life. But that will never be enough. Never. Why? Because it doesn't go deep enough. John Flavel, the Puritan writer, said this. He said, we, can, we are more able to stop the sun in its course or make rivers run uphill than by our own skill and power to rule and order our hearts. That's the problem. It's because external activities and techniques alone can never change us because something is wrong in us. Something is wrong with our hearts. We are shattered. We are broken. Evil has marred us. We are shattered shadows of what we were meant to be. And you can change your behavior, but you cannot change your heart. And this is what my dear sister Mary discovered on her own journey, her painful journey, that I hope you listen to this week, is that even religion and church could not fix and make her new. That was only just throwing more tools and more behaviors at her. What she needed was an encounter with the living Jesus. She needed to meet Jesus, to know Jesus, to experience the forgiveness and the grace of Jesus, and then to be one with Jesus and to live out of this new identity and power from Jesus. That's what produces change. Technique will never be enough. You gotta go deeper. You gotta go to the core of who you are. And who are you? If you know Jesus, you are no longer what you have. You are no longer what you do. You are no longer what people think. You are no longer what you accomplish. You are no longer what you achieve. You are no longer your greatest success. You are no longer your worst failure. Here is what you are. You are who you belong to. You are who you are loved by. And the more you see him and know him and meet him at places like this table and encounter him and meditate on him and live out of your union with him and draw from his power within you, the more you will find that you are becoming like him, that you're becoming like him. And that, that is his ambition for you. Don't you want that? I do. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you so much that we don't have to change ourselves. Oh, thanks be to God, because we are messes. And we need uh, that external power of Jesus through the Spirit to penetrate our hearts, to renew our souls, and to make us new. And we long for that to happen. And we pray this month that we would all together um, join our hearts and our bodies and our hands and our, and our community so that we might participate with you in this work of change. Help us to know and experience Jesus today at this table. We pray in his name. Amen.
Our Lord Jesus Christ graciously invites us to the table this morning to celebrate. And as we prepare our hearts together now with the words on page 12, let's expect to encounter him and to experience his grace and love for us. So joining together, let's say these words. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right to give our thanks and praise. Holy and merciful God, our Father, you have made us in your image and for yourself. You have made this good world for us to tend and to enjoy. God, our Father, hear the praise of grateful hearts. You sought your ancient people when they strayed from you. You freed them from their oppressor and brought them home. God, our Father, hear the praise of grateful hearts. You have sent your Son to bring us home to you by his incarnation. You have found us. By his death. You have forgiven us. By his resurrection. You have freed us. God, our Father, hear the praise of grateful hearts. And in union with Jesus Christ of Nazareth, our great high priest, and with all who worship you both in heaven and on earth, we offer you our praise, saying, Holy, holy, holy Lord, God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Friends, uh, listen, the Lord Jesus on the night that he was betrayed took bread and after giving thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body that is broken for you. My people do this in remembrance of me. And after the supper, he took the cup and he poured it out and he said, this is my blood that is poured out for you for the forgiveness of your sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And so now, uh, whenever we eat this bread and drink this cup like we're about to do together, we are proclaiming the death of our risen Lord until he comes again for us. Let's pray. Holy and merciful God, our Father, send down your Holy Spirit on our bread and wine that they may be for us the body and blood of Christ and on your people that we may be the body of Christ, reconciled to you and to each other by his blood. By your Holy Spirit, make us one with Christ, one with each other, and one in mission to all the world until Christ shall come in final victory and we feast together at his heavenly banquet. So we cry, Maranatha, which means, even so, come, Lord Jesus, come. Friends, uh, the way that we'll celebrate this meal together, uh, there's, a lot, there's a lot of us here today, so we just need to be patient with each other um, as we eat, eat, feast on Jesus' grace. And the way that we'll do that is there'll be two stations up here, um, and the, ser- the, the ushers will dismiss you, the outer people, and then you'll just come down the outer aisle and you rip a piece of bread from the loaf and dip it in the cup and then come back up the center aisle. For you all in the balcony, um, there is a station for you there, up there. Um, if you need a gluten-free wafer or an individual juice cup, they're present at this table. And Rick will be coming around to serve you if you're not able to come forward for any reason. Just signal him and he can serve you in your seat. And those of you who are watching in the wiggle room, um, Rick will, will serve you there as well. Um, come. You know, this is a... This is an open table in the sense that it is open for all sinners uh, who have realized that they cannot change themselves and they need Jesus to work his powerful change in them, right? If you have recognized that you are incapable of changing yourself and you have turned to God and said, forgive me of my sins and begin that work of change in me, then this this is for you. Change starts 
here. Jesus is present here by the table, at the table, and he wants to begin to do his work of grace in you. If you're not a Christian or if you're not sure uh, whether you are or not, there's some prayers printed in the bulletin on page 14. You can come up if you want and just put your hands on your chest like this and someone will pray for you. You could even become someone who is in Christ today. Uh, you, can, you can just say to God, Lord, I'm tired of trying to live my life on my own and change myself. I can't. Would you make me one with Jesus so that I can be in him and he can be in me? That's all it means to become a Christian. And you can do that today and receive God's grace. Talk to me afterwards. In fact, I'll be standing up here at this table the whole time. And if you want prayer for anything, either for that or something else in your life, I'd love to pray for you. I'll be right here. So friends, let's receive the Lord's meal together, remembering that Christ who died and rose is the same Christ who now reigns and is in us by his spirit, present here at the table, feeding us with grace. Our servers.